Hello and welcome to Getting to Know, a podcast where I sit down and talk with the people I love to just get to know them a little better. I'm Oliver Sale and on today's episode I sat down with Jenny Tufts, a writer, aerialist and personification of the colour blue to talk all things art, the internet and taking the donut. But before we get into that, this episode mentions the IACC and the IADF. For those of you not involved in the niche world of Irish aerial opportunities, the IACC is the Irish Aerial Creation Centre, where Jenny and I first met, and the IADF is the Irish Aerial Dance Festival, an aerial festival hosted by Fidget Feet, an aerial company run by Chantal McCormick. Also mentioned in the episode is Ashling Nee Kelly, the best aerial hoop mind alive, as well as Rachel Strickland and Lee Clayden, who along with Chantel, ran the creative intensive Jenny and I first attended. As always, there will be links to everything mentioned in the show notes, along with time codes for you to jump around. And with that, I think we're ready. Hi. Hi. It is so nice to see you. It is so lovely to see your face too. It's been almost exactly a year since IADF. Yeah, it's like a month out. How are you? How are you doing? I am doing wonderfully, actually, which feels like something I'm reluctant to say in these times. It feels like bragging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I am. I really am very, very truly lucky to be uh, coincidentally stuck in a place that I love with people that I love. And I'm having a great time. <laughs> yeah. How did you... Because you're in Ireland at the moment. I am in Ireland for a week and a half more. I'm only allowed to be here for 90 days and those are quickly running short. But Ashling and I and my partner were traveling in California for a wedding. We had planned to do all these workshops in San Francisco. And then we realized we had two days to get back to Europe before the flights ended. So we had to decide Berlin or Ireland. And we knew that in Ireland we would have access to a training space. And in Berlin, everything was closed. So no brainer. Yeah, because you've been been able to train a lot. So... I actually have been able to train more here in this time than at any other point in my entire life, any other place, um, which is very counter to most aerialists' experiences these last few months. Um, Small town life is great. We have an empty studio that nobody's using and permission to use it, and we can walk there. It's within our lockdown radius. One thing that really came to light for me early on in this process was how much I had been hiding behind the career of an aerial teacher. Teaching is something that I had experience in before I started doing acrobatics. I was an English teacher, I was a tutor, I was a nanny. (laughs) I was very comfortable in that classroom teaching setting. And for me, to call myself an aerialist, I had to be making money doing that thing. And the easier route to saying that that was the case was to teach classes. So I did that and I pursued that and I I do love it. But what this has made me realize is how much time and energy that takes and how it detracts from my ability to create stuff for me. Because the stuff that I'm creating that I would love to put on stage is not the stuff I'm going to be giving my level one students. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And the body can only take so much time in the air. So yeah, it's really changed the direction of what I think I want to do in the circus world for the next couple of years. Yeah. 
Because you mentioned to me when we were first together in Ireland back in uh, 2018, end of 2018, you mentioned to me that one of the things you wanted to do was to eventually start a school. Has this experience now, seeing the kind of space that you want to be in, kind of affected that dream for you? Yes and no. I think that having creative control over a physical place, the aesthetics, the the structures, the people, is still very appealing to me, but that it's been pushed down the road maybe 10 or 20 years. Uh, I do like the idea of curating a community and being able to offer a space to people in the way that lots of people around the world have welcomed me into their spaces, but it's like having 10 children, like opening, (laughs) signing, I was ready to sign a lease on a space in California six months ago. And then the real shift happened in January when I received a cold email out of the blue from a company that I had not applied to, but have dreamt of working for for my entire life. And they offered me a contract. And I have never had a performance contract before. COVID-19 happened and that contract is probably not going to happen. If it does, it'll be in like a year and a half, but I'm not, I'm not counting my chickens there. But what it made me realize was that it's not too late and that it's within reach. Wow, that's crazy to me that you've never had a performance contract before. Like my only experience of you as an aerialist has been in the context of performance and creation. And you are, I'm just going to you know, dote on you a little bit and say that you're a beautiful performer (laughs) and that I personally love watching you in the air. Like that is part of the joy of knowing you is being able to see you do aerial. Talking about aesthetics, because you brought it up and how much you uh, want to have Mm -hmm. the aesthetic and creative control of a space. The smallest possible space, your body, has quite a specific aesthetic, which I wanted to talk about. (laughs) Um, Go for it. For those of uh, the people listening to this who don't know you, there is a particular color which is pretty <laughs> predominant in your life. I think it's fair to say. As I look at you now, I could, like, you, the blue hair is the the bluest thing in the world. Um, oh, hardly. I'm running out. There's no blue dye in all of Sligo, Ireland, and the post isn't working, so please help me. I'm losing my identity. <laughs> who will you be without blue hair? I'll be blonde in two weeks if I'm not careful. (laughs) How did this come into your life? Because it's like, it's not just the hair. I mean, you've got blue clothes, a blue hoop, blue hula hoops. Like this is kind of a big visual part of who you are. It's quite simple in that I I did the hair. Uh Uh-huh. And I've had other colors of hair. And when I found blue, I was like, oh, I recognize myself in shop windows more quickly with this color than with other colors. But once you have bright blue hair, very little else matches or doesn't look chaotic. Like, I, I can't really wear other bright colors without that being a statement, so. I also quite like wearing black. I lived in New York City longer than any other place in my adult life and uh, adopted that aesthetic. So I'm allowed to wear all black and not look goth if I have bright blue hair. But actually, I adopted the blue, I wanna say five years ago, within that range. It was at a time when I first went to Australia and I got a job as a live-in nanny because I just wanted to do circus and not have bills. And that was the only way I could afford rent in Melbourne. So I was a live-in nanny and it was a phenomenal experience. It was basically an artist residency because I had a very easy job, didn't have to worry about rent and I could just train all the time. And this whole community in Melbourne knew me only as blue hair Jenny. And I feared that if I ever came back and didn't have blue hair, nobody would remember who I was. <laughs> I mean, this is how I first kind of learned 
you was as Blue Jen because we had Princess Jen. Yeah, all of Fidget Feet refers to me exclusively as Blue Jen. Yeah. It's my identity now. I can't get rid of it. I mean, not only does it suit you, like aesthetically suit you, but on like a spiritual and personal level, I feel it's really symbolic of kind of who you are in a way. Like you're the most chaotic blue I've ever met, but you are very much a blue. <laughs> I think that's fair tell to me say. Tell more about what blue means. And then I'll tell you my other reason why I like the blue hair. I don't know. I've, I mean, we've spent some really interesting times together. I mean, one of my favorite memories of us is standing in that house looking at the sunrise and the room just being full mm. of red. And like these beautiful moments of what I think are very serene things, even though they seem kind of eccentric in just that they feel outside of what I would expect from my like normal everyday life. Like I feel like when we are together, it's like I'm a little bit outside of my comfort zone, but in a very good way. Like it feels like it's okay to be outside of my comfort zone. Excellent. If that's what my art could do for people, I would be happy. I'd pack up and go home. I've achieved my But that's goal. what you're you've already done it. You've already you've already done it just by being yourself. And then in your art, like having seen not a huge amount of it, but seeing the things that I have seen, that is the experience that I have. And I think that's because we were blessed in that experience to be working with uh, Chantel and Rachel and Lee who could put help us put ourselves into the space. And so we got to see you. And that is how I think a lot of people experience you. So what is your other reason for the blue hair? I don't remember if I saw this as a screenshot, probably some like Facebook screenshot viral thing. But there was a comment on a men's rights activist site that was like, in nature, animals that are bright blue are often poisonous. If you see a woman with blue hair, she's obviously got mental problems. And I was like, if this keeps the men's rights activists away from me, I am here for it. <laughs> uh, wow. Don't you just love men? Yep. They're so great. <laughs> They're so great. I just love them so much. <sighs> Speaking of the internet, you, not so recently anymore, but not that long ago, you kind of exploded into internet popularity, which has a big effect on how you interact with the virtual space. When did that happen? And like, what do you think kind of triggered that experience? That's a great question. The internet is a weird place and the, the currents of the internet are really unpredictable. And as much as people talk about strategy, I don't think anyone really knows what's going to happen. It's like the stock market. Things just take off unexpectedly. I do believe that the privilege of having a nice phone, working at a studio that had white background walls, was a huge factor because the videos that I posted, although perhaps not the most spectacular acrobatics you've seen in the world, were clean and therefore the algorithm was like, this is a high quality video, let's bump this up. I also had the privilege of time in the year that kind of happened where I was unemployed for longer. I, I've always had one or two or three jobs since I was 15 until 2018. And then I found myself unable to find employment in my new country of residence due to a combination of the stipulations of my visa and me having absolutely 
no contacts in the German industry and not having the skills to make up for the fact that I didn't have the contacts. And so I just poured myself into training and one can only really train effectively for maximum four hours a day. And even then, it's probably not healthy. So I spend a lot of time on my phone and I, I enjoy writing. I enjoy communicating with people. So I would pour lots of time into fiddling with filters and writing captions and stuff. Popularity on the internet has almost nothing to do with your skill level. It's another job. It's another skill set. You can be good at Instagram and you can be good at Arial or bad at one or the other or both and they don't correlate at all. <laughs> But how was that for you to suddenly go from kind of just training in your own space and like getting maybe a couple of personal views on an Instagram post to suddenly getting a huge, well, a much larger number of of attention and uh, being seen a lot more, kind of without asking. It's been on the whole very positive. I have made a lot of connections through Instagram that I otherwise wouldn't have, not only with students and potential clients and work, but also with other professionals who perhaps might not have known that I existed had they not seen me on Instagram. And uh, I'm so happy that I have a guest room in Berlin. I've never had a guest room before. And so when these people would chat to me, I'd be like, come through Berlin, stay at my house. And then I would get to train with these heroes that I'd never met before because they were living in my apartment. Um, so it's really been an incredible networking tool. Um, it's even better now that I'm at a level where I am creating things that although there's no original movement, feel original to me, new combinations, new things that I'm discovering on my own and sharing that with the world and seeing how other people interpret it. And we have this hashtag virtual hoop meeting 2020 where a bunch of the people who I would love to train with and might never get to because we live thousands of miles away are all feeding each other new ideas and building on them and uh, overwhelmingly positive. I think you handle being public very very well thank you but i think that it's something that a lot of people don't manage so well it's very easy to become egotistical in the face of popularity you know uh, you get a couple thousand views on a video and it feels like you've done something very very good and i think that one of the things i really appreciate about your reaction to this is that you accept the fact that it has nothing to do really with the quality of It doesn't, it doesn't have any intrinsic value in who you are as a person. Absolutely. Which is an amazing thing to have. A lot of my friends are popular on the internet and uh, not all of them have the same humble approach. But you have to, if you make the successes about you, then you also have to make the failures about you and you have to make the nasty comments about you. And if you just... I like the, I think I heard this in a TED talk by the woman who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, whose name I can't remember, Elizabeth Gilbert, talked about the concept, I'm totally going to butcher this, I think it was the ancient Greeks, could have been some other civilization, who talked about the concept of not being a genius, but having a genius. And so you have one, sometimes he shows up to work, sometimes he doesn't, all you can do is show up to the desk as well and see what happens. And that way you, yeah, you don't take on anything as part of your core identity. It's just, it's just the currents of the internet. 
people are strange and what they like. And always, always happens where I'll put up something I'm very, very proud of, and it's crickets. And then I'll put up something that's like a spin that I've done a thousand times, and people go mental! <laughs> but that's the way, is it? Especially with Ariel. With any, yeah, any technical art, people who don't know and understand what is difficult or what is new aren't gonna know and that's fine i mean i i probably watch a cellist and i'm like that that was amazing and all the other cellists are like what are you talking about we learned that in second year yeah this is very true and one last thing on the internet thing you were saying being in the public eye um i don't feel like i am in the public eye i think that there's a very small section of my life and that is my aerial life and development as a circus artist and that is absolutely on display everyone has access to that and I'm very open and honest in that corner but I keep it in that corner and I I have things that I keep for myself and I think that that's a very healthy compartmentalization for me but I think that's something that a lot of people myself included do struggle with is that boundary between like, because uh, having a professional Instagram or like an Instagram account specifically for your work is like, I think a very good boundary to have. But often we start as people in the, the industry with like a, a private account that happens to have a couple of dance things or some aerial stuff or whatever. And it's kind of a mix. And so then you continue to post that content and people become engaged with both sides of you, Right the outward side and the inward side. Um, there's not really a point just that you, maybe it's a good idea to have a professional Instagram or like a, uh, so that you can separate those two things and say, this is what everyone can see. And then this is what I want to share with the people that I, that I care about. If you want to share that kind of content. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely do put personal things out there in the aerial context I you know I don't want to just be a, a shiny resume on the internet um I do share my thoughts I share my fails I share myself swearing at the camera when I can't get a handstand that day um but I am aware and okay with the fact that it is not a whole picture of who I am and I think that that's a good thing I think that's a very good thing moving from public and like professional life into something a little bit more uh, intimate. You were one of the first people I met who uh, is actually practicing polyamory. Really? In your world? I was one of the first. Shocking. It's so the rage these days. But I know a lot of people that like talk about being polyamorous, but before I met you, I'd never met someone who actually practiced it. And I wanted to kind of talk about where that came from for you. Like, how did you, where did that journey start? Well, in 2011, I was doing my second year of university at NYU and I was studying abroad in London and I uh, hadn't really dated much or very successfully as a teenager. I was a late bloomer, very much. Um, so I hadn't even really given monogamy a fair shot. Uh, and I met this guy, we went on a couple dates, it's great. And uh, after the second date, he sent me an email and he was like, I just want to explain this thing that I do. I have a partner. We've been together eight years. We do this thing called polyamory. She's also dating a New Yorker. We apparently like New Yorkers. It's okay if you never want to see me again, but I would really love to take you on another date. And I am so happy that he put it in email form. 
which sounds like a cop-out, but I think that if I had had that conversation face-to-face, I wouldn't have had the time to process and think about this and research it and really consider what he was asking, which I did. And I think as a result of me being abroad and doing that sophomore and college thing of trying on different personalities and different lifestyles, I was like, yeah, sure. I don't want to be locked down in a monogamous relationship when I'm 20 years old. That sounds terrible because your choices are either I stay with this person forever and never experience anything else or we break up, which also sucks. Um, So for me at that time, it was perfect. And I had an amazing experience. I really, uh, really enjoyed hanging out with his partner uh, who I admire to no end and still do to this day. And I have not stopped being ethically non-monogamous ever since. (laughs) Uh, The community in New York City is huge and they're so organized and they hold events like discussion groups with tea. It's brilliant. There is probably no better place than New York City to be adopted into this world and have a variety of people who understand what it is and have experience and organize events just for you guys where it's not weird to bring your boyfriend and your girlfriend. I mean, that sounds amazing. I think it's one of those things that there isn't enough space for conversation about it at the moment. Like, it's one of the things I think in the queer community, I would consider it part of the queer community. I don't know if everyone would, but um, I think it's one of the parts of the queer community that is often, uh, like, overlooked or, like, not maybe as organized in outside outside of New York where clearly there's like a thousand people in like a dope ass relationships trying to uh organize events and stuff I'm also a not particularly uh prolific non-monogamous person I maybe go on one or two dates with a new person per year uh I'm just lazy mostly but I find that it's really uh, skyrocketed in popularity among the circus community because it just works so well for our jobs. When you're going to be away on tour for six months out of the year, monogamy sucks. And that's not to say that it's not perfect and beautiful for some people. I just want that to be a conscious choice and know that, you know, it's one of many options. And if you're choosing it and you like it, phenomenal. Don't change a thing. Um, but for me... I think that it maintains a level of freedom and individuality for everyone to be able to chase other connections when you come across them organically. Yeah, because you've traveled a lot. Tell me the journey for you. So when I graduated college, I graduated with a degree in politics, which I had no intention of using to work in politics. Politics is decisively unfun and you sit down a lot and you have to police your thoughts and I was not cut out for any of that. Anyway, I graduated and really my only directive in life was that I wanted to travel and I would take any job I could get so that I could travel and I knew that I liked this aerial thing but I was pretty shit at it and so I was like, I'll I'll do that wherever I go but I need to get a job so that I can travel. So I was an English teacher in Madrid for a year was learning aerial fabric in Spanish, which was somewhat dangerous given my level of Spanish. And then I really, I knew that I loved the circus thing and I wanted to do it at a higher level. 
And I knew that to do that, uh, I needed instruction in English. And I knew that I couldn't afford it in New York anymore. So when they asked me to renew my contract in Spain, I said, nope, I'm going to Australia next year. Without having made any plans to go to Australia. Didn't know what I was going to do in Australia. But it was like, oh, that's an English-speaking country where I'm allowed to have a visa, unlike the UK, so I'm going to go there. And then I did. <laughs> and I went to this amazing festival, which I would love to plug because it's been so integral to my development. Um, there's a company in based in Melbourne called Spin Circus, and they run events. And when I was working as a nanny, I went to their um, their first event. I think it's been 11 years it's been running. 10 years, 10 or 11. Uh, and it's a fire spinning and general circus festival. And I got there, and people took me seriously as a circus artist. It's like, oh no, I'm just a, a hobbyist. I've never done this. And like, yeah, but, but you want to, right? So you will. It's great. Try this. And it's... It's such a magical combination I've found in that community of incredible high skill matched with incredible generosity and openness to sharing your work and just chucking something new. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> Not in a reckless way. It's just such a welcoming community that also has an incredible level of technique. And that really helped me believe that I could make that jump. I do think that's something that coming from a dance space that like circus really has, at least the circus that I've experienced has over dance and there is such a community for sharing now, maybe because it's so technical and there is the level of risk involved. So it's about communicating how to do something without, you know, breaking your neck or something, but it, does foster a real sense of community and kindness. Not all the time and not in everyone. No community is perfect. But yeah, I think that's something that circus can really excel at. And I'm glad that you got to experience that that thing is kind of like the big moment into, into circus. How long were you in Australia for? My first, uh, well, backtrack a little bit. I had a summer job at Columbia University for seven consecutive summers. And this job allowed me to live in New York over the summer, work my absolute ass off, like 18 hour days, but I made a lot of money and I didn't spend any money because all my expenses were taken care of. And that gave me the freedom to take these jobs, teaching in Spain, nannying in Australia for the academic school year and know that I was okay. I could go back home. I'd have another job. Um, and it really, it opened a lot of doors for me that I didn't know I needed opened. And uh, I just was happy that I stumbled into that internship after my first year of college and just never left for seven years. Um, so I stayed for one academic year, my first time in Australia, left after that job, went back to that job again in June. And that was my last summer working that job. And that summer, I really realized how much my training was slipping backwards due to working these 12, 18 hour days. Um, and so I decided that year I wasn't gonna go back to that job. I was a professional dog walker in uh, New York for a couple of months there. 
It's the only place in the world where this works as a full-time job. If you're in exactly the right geographical area, there are so many rich people with dogs in such a small area that it can actually work. I must have walked 30 kilometers a day. It was great. Best shape of my life. Um, but then I told my partner at the time, listen, I'm just aching to get back to Australia. It's, it's such a healthy place for me. I want to take a couple months off and just train there and try to make the career jump to being a circus artist. So I went back for four months. And every year since, I've gone back for January to go to this series of festivals run by Spin Circus. And it's just, it's a homecoming every time. And this last time, I went back as a trainer. Oh, that's, so, that's just such a nice uh, way to re-engage with your community uh, and to kind of feel a sense of change or like a sense of growth in you to be like, ah, this is the place that gave something so big to me. And now I get to come back and kind of be a different, be a different part of the experience. Uh, what was that like for you to know that, like, to come into that space as a trainer? It really didn't feel much different at all, except that I think this was my fourth year going to these festivals. And I think by third year, I began to have faith that even if I don't manage to make that horrific plane ride one year, that community is there and will continue to be there and continue to recognize me, even if I don't have blue hair. <laughs> um, because that's always the worry, right? With spreading yourself really thin around the world is that you worry that your community is too shallow and that if you don't really work to keep connections that they'll just fade into nothingness. And by the third year, definitely by this year, I really feel that that is a, a solid presence in my life, whether or not I can actually physically be there on the prickly ground covered in mosquitoes. <laughs> It's a lovely festival. I'm sure. I guess that is something, as someone who has also traveled a fair amount uh, in the context of my work, it is something that's very difficult to to find and to nurture or to, to have faith in that those communities will stay. You know, I haven't traveled so many countries, but I've lived in a lot of different cities and worked with a lot of different people. Um, and that experience of shifting and always kind of losing... Uh, losing the communities that you're building over these periods uh, can be really draining, um, especially if you don't have a, a really solid base. But I think that's something that I really appreciated from our time at the IACC, the Irish Aerial, yeah, Irish Aerial Creation Center, was being able to, in actually a very short period of time, I think create that community in the same way, in a similar way, one that can persist. Absolutely. Yeah, the people in that, that, group over three weeks quickly became one of my top communities that I I feel like I could reach out to anyone from that experience now after a year and a half of no contact and it wouldn't be weird it would be they know me they've seen me cry into the acromat <laughs> cry a lot so much a lot of darkness a lot of crying but it was wonderful yeah, and we got to make some really beautiful stuff as a community from the darkness and the crying. Uh, this is something I wanted to ask you because I feel like we spoke about it during our many mornings where I was disrupting your morning pages. <laughs> Never. Welcome disruption, always. But I wanted to talk a little bit about faith because you're not a religious person. I am 
adamantly not a religious person. I used to have a lot of anger toward organized religion, and I have since let go of that. Um, I did grow up going to church. It was a lovely progressive church, and I, I think that they do excellent work, but it was not for me. I love, I think my favorite quote of all time from anyone came from Rachel Strickland, and I don't know if she was quoting someone else or if she made this up, but uh, in Ireland at the IADF, she was asking about, like, how woo are you? Are you into tarot or whatever, whatever? And I said, you know, I, th- I think that there are connections that humans need to make, and they are able to make them, but sometimes you need a little push to make the connection that's already there in your brain, but you're just not sure what it is yet. And that can be tarot, that can be astrology, that can be anything. Um, anything that you need to be that bridge to the realization that you need to have. And I was trying to explain this, and she gets that wise smile on and goes, birds make nests, humans make meaning. Mm. And I think that was just the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. So I'm here for creating meaning out of nothing. I don't think that it's wrong because it's not grounded in logic. Mm. (laughs) Um, But I don't have any names for a faith that I subscribe to as of now anyway yeah actually one of my jobs one of my many many jobs that I've held in my life I was an an editor for um, a meditation teacher a Tibetan influenced meditation teacher in New York City named Locke Kelly and I was 22 at the time and I read the book, and I found it very interesting, but I just just didn't get on board with doing the exercises. I couldn't meditate. I still can't meditate. I know that I should, and occasionally I try, and I just can't. And I told Locke about this, and he's like, oh, you just don't need it yet. And I thought that was very accepting and simple, and he went on to say that most of his clients, most of the people who come to his workshops are in their 40s and 50s, and they've reached this point in their lives where they're like I need something more out of life to keep feeling like there's purpose here and I thought that was very um insightful of him to not be like oh but you you should it'll it'll be good for you take your meditation vitamins no he's like you just don't need it badly enough yet and someday you might in which case it'll be here for you that is such peaceful advice right I don't. I think because especially at the moment with everything that's happening, uh, meaning making is very, is both very difficult and very desirable, right? Like, the world is going to shit, but like I've got to find God in this crazy world, and like a lot of my friends have started meditating. I got back to meditating after kind of a hiatus from it, and I think a lot of people are really stressing themselves, myself included, about finding that spiritual place or that those practices and then feeling like they don't make sense or they don't they don't sit so well and to just kind of be like oh you don't need it yet if it doesn't make sense to you you know or it doesn't feel good right now come back to it later it's okay yeah yeah doing sitting down to meditate because an article told you that you need to sit down and meditate is the worst reason to do it (laughs) yes yeah. Ah. 
Wow. What was the name of the teacher again? Uh, Locke Kelly. L-O-C-H-K-E-L-L-Y. Locke Kelly. Lovely man. We take organic smoothie breaks in the middle of the day. It was a great job. You've had a great work history. I really have lucked out, you know? Even when I was, like, searching for cash gigs on Craigslist. I think this is something I do appreciate about you, is that you are very, very, very good at making opportunities out of luck or out of chance and like taking something and really rolling with it and making something really good. Thank you. Um, I love Amanda Palmer. When I first came into contact with her, it was via her TED Talk and I loved it and I listened to her music and I was like, it's fine, but I love you as a, a speaker and how you think and how you express your philosophies on life. So I just read everything that she wrote and listened to every interview she ever gave. Um, I'm a patron of hers, big fan. Uh, anyway, in her book, she talks about accepting opportunities that come to you and how it doesn't matter if you feel like you don't deserve them. They're not compromising you by accepting gifts that are given to you. Uh, and her example is Thoreau apparently like lived in the woods and you know was this this totally cut off from society person but his mom brought him donuts every week and he took those donuts and he ate the donuts and that doesn't make him any less of the artist that he is it doesn't compromise his philosophy that he accepted these donuts and so every time she comes across a situation like this she just tells herself to take the donuts and I've adopted that, too. If someone comes to me with an opportunity and my brain goes, you don't deserve this, you should probably say no. I'm like, take the donuts. They're here in front of you. And as long as you're not harming anyone else, take the donuts. Which is what you're doing right now by being out in beautiful, beautiful Ireland, training all the time, like completely without plan or experience. Yeah, mm. it just just kind of happened that way. Mm. And I'm training with probably the most brilliant aerial hoop mind alive today. I could not be yeah. like here. Yeah, I think uh, she would not agree with you. No, she would not, but she's not here, so I can say it. Ashling Nikiali. Is the best aerialist ever. Just a stellar human. All around, yep. Pretty much. We are so Uh, (laughs) blessed to know her. She's going to hear this and she's going to hate it. (laughs) Uh, But you two are studying an aerial uh, festival together, yes? We are running an intensive, yes. So I would say that our styles, well, (laughs) they've definitely melded a lot over the course of these two months. Um, but we really enjoy working together and creating together and just hanging out together. Um, we got to do that a lot more this year than either of us were expecting and it's been great. And it's just nice if you're running an intensive sort of situation to not be the sole teacher of six hours a day of stuff. That's a lot of, uh, outward going energy to to give up for six days straight so it's i think that our styles are complementary enough that we can share that load and people the same people will be interested in both of our work and 
yeah, we just have a lot of fun together. So we're running a six-day aerial hoop advanced intensive here in Sligo in October. What are the dates? October 25th to 30th. But we understand that not only is this a really economically challenging time for everybody, but also most aerialists do not have access to a space to send an application video. So although applications are open, we are not reviewing anything until August 1st. And that is uh, changeable if COVID, you know, reignites. Um, so anybody who's like, I want to get on this, but I can't get in a hoop, don't worry. You have so much time. What is your favorite word in English and why? I think grace. That suits you. Yeah, it's very much like a me answer. It's kind of, I think, like uh, going back to what you were saying about, you know, taking the donuts. I have a faith practice. I believe in a God of some kind. And I think that is like when these opportunities come, it is kind of by his grace. I make a lot of mistakes as a person. Uh, and if I was to judge are. myself, yeah, I mean, it's part of being human. But I think if I were to judge myself on a scale and say, like, am I good or bad? I would look at my experience and say, oh, I'm not definitely not worthy of a lot of the things that I have. Um, which, I yeah, I think is very natural. But to be like, oh, no, you're getting this because the world is graceful. It's full, filled with grace. It comes through uh, forgiveness and acceptance of what's happening. Um, and, you know, I, li I have been very fortunate in my opportunity I, in Norway, one of the most beautiful countries in the world, teaching dance when COVID ends. Uh, yeah, so Grace, it, yeah, I love it so much. I'm a big fan. I love that. I especially love it because I never want to get in the toxic mindset of deserving and and believing that what you have you deserve because it's irrelevant. It, like if you have something, something good happens to you, it's probably not because you deserve it. It's probably just chance or grace or however you choose to do that. And if something bad happens to you, it's probably not because you deserve it either. And good answer <sighs> thank you <laughs> i enjoy words a lot i think that if i had to choose a religion it would be language and reading I, I know that if i get in like a head spinning space where i can't stop all these thought loops if i just read a book a good book <laughs> for 10 minutes i'll be back on my immediate plane of existence I learned recently that um, the Quran is the most memorized piece of text in the world. Really? Because uh, when, they, when uh, Muslims pray, they pray long sections from the Quran. So they don't just ah. pray however they want, but they have to pray specific yeah. pieces of text. Which, although I, you know, I don't have any connection to Islam, I know very little about it. I was like, oh get that part of of the experience um and i do think language is i mean we're both writers alongside being aerialists <laughs> and artists and all of those things so uh it's not surprising that we like words 
very much. Anyway. I distinctly remember there being, uh, well, I studied creative writing at school also. There was no major mm. in it, or else I would have chosen that, so I minored. And people would get after me, like, are you still writing? Are you still writing? And no, not at all in the way that I used to. However, writing is something I can do when I'm 85, and acrobatics yeah. is not. <laughs> so there's always time. Besides, I don't think most people create anything really groundbreaking until they're 40 anyway. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be writing in the meantime, and it doesn't mean there can't be wildly entertaining stuff in the meantime, and of course there's prodigies out there, but uh, I think that writing only gets better with life experience. Mm. And unfortunately, uh, flips do not. <laughs> Hmm. But I think that's true. I think that's, and I, but I think it's actually true of, of aerial and of movement practices as well. It's just that there is this balance between, uh, between the body, and the mind in that context, right? Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. The older you get, like the some of the stuff that um. Martha Graham and Trisha Brown, like dance creators, made like mm-hmm. later into their life is so incredible and so stunning and moving and it comes from having been at it for a very long time you know but you look at some of that work and it's so minimal because the body is only again you can't do a backflip when you're Mm -hmm. 75 if you can that's awesome but there is a limit at some point um it's such a, a tragic balance but uh, yeah, I hope to be creating meaningful aerial work well into my middle ages. Yeah, I don't doubt that. Which I think that's going to happen. So okay. <laughs> where can people find you on Instagram or on the internet? On Instagram, my profile is Circle Cirque. And you have a Patreon, right? I, I do have a Patreon. My Patreon, uh, if you search Jenny Tufts, it might be under that or Circle Cirque. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm the one with blue hair on an aerial hoop. You've had some really uh, helpful and interesting uh, Patreon posts recently, which people should also go and check out, because I think that is where you get to do a little bit more writing and it gets to flourish a little bit more. That's so lovely to hear, because it's a new development. So Ashling, who also has a Patreon, um, I hope you have like notes in your in your podcast because I will not spell her name out loud. We made Patreons together at the beginning of this quarantine, as did many, many artists who realized they needed uh, some form of income to keep creating in a time like this. Uh, And we just kind of did it and we're working it out as we go. And so far it's been really incredible to have an audience of people you know are actually invested in what you do and curious and have questions and feedback and it's been great. I'm really enjoying the process. And writing more than 300 words or whatever Instagram allows in your captions. <laughs> I can also be a little bit more honest because I know that my I know who my audience is. Um, I'm brand new. I only have 25 patrons, so I really do know them each individually. And I can feel more free to say things than I would to an audience of 20,000. Which must be kind of a freeing experience to have that like it's still public in a way um but it's like a semi-public space for your professional work definitely 
It's very different. But I'm very happy to hear you enjoy it. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I get it. I enjoy great your blog, joy. too. You should plug your blog, I have had, which posts it. Things to help you practice isolation from April 2nd. I have had that blog post of yours open on my laptop since the day you posted it, and I routinely go back to it and, and use it as a reference. I love it. Thank you. This is actually the two episodes that we I've recorded so far each have had someone else plug my blog, even though there's like five posts <laughs> on my blog. So uh, Amazing. It's quality I'm, content. Very, very sporadic quality content. <laughs> Once a year. You know, quality over quantity. Indeed. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been such a pleasure to Thank talk you with for you. Thank <sighs> And to just get to be back in your life for a little while. Hopefully in person again soon. Yeah, I really hope so. We need to do this where we can actually drink beer in person instead of just very, very far apart. In the sun, in Berlin, <sighs> on my rooftop. It's going to be great. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Getting to Know. The show was produced, edited, and recorded by me, Oliver Sale. Thank you so much to Jenny for sitting down to talk with me. If you would like to find out more about her, check out her Instagram at Circle Cirque or on Patreon under Jenny Tufts. If you'd like to know more about the show, follow me on Instagram at Oliver Sale Creator or check out my website, Oliver Sale Dance, where I post infrequent but quality blog posts. Have a great day and remember, take the donut. I remember my boyfriend in Australia got a, a text saying, I just saw your girlfriend getting off a bus. And he's like, no, you didn't. She's with me right now. And the person goes, God damn it. How many blue haired girls carrying hula hoops can there possibly be?